This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the podcast Ernest Emerson. Now, Ernest was my guest on episode 128, and in this second conversation, we discuss his brand new book, Bad Guy with a Gun, School Safety, Psychology, sleep deprivation, mental health, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Ernest Emerson. Enjoy. Well, Ernest, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. We sat down, I look back, it was four years ago that we first did our conversation. Um, you were so, so generous. You you gave me one of the CQB um, uh, knives. I was able to use your studio where you're sitting now to interview Hoist Gracie face-to-face. <laughs> so, you know, there's been a lot of interaction, but I just personally cool. want, to, want to, you know, welcome you back to the podcast. Well, I, thank you for having me back. I have... It's always a pleasure. And you and I have conversed several times over different things. And I got to be honest, I watch your uh, uh, Instagram posts and all that. And sometimes I can watch them. Sometimes I I know it's going to make me cry. So I, I, I don't watch some of them. I'll be frank with you on that too. But I pay attention to them. But they're, you're hitting some real real nerves and you're making some great statements with it so whatever you're doing just keep up the good work man yeah well thank you i'll sit there in my bed kind of um sobbing i'll tell my wife all right i'm gonna make everyone cry today because this made me cry so i'm gonna pay it forward (laughs) it's worked on me a couple times (laughs) gosh almighty but you know again james like we were just talking about it's unfortunate that that is the subject matter that is all too uh, available to us now, uh, tragedies and shootings and hit and runs and just, you know, people knocking out other people for whatever twisted reason. I mean, it's, it's a weird, weird thing. And I got to think, do you think that we've always been doing this kind of stuff or is it, has it been exacerbated some in some way, or is it, is even social media actually adding to, you know, I'll get 50,000 views if I do something really bad. Uh, Cause it seems like bad stuff gets a lot more views than, you know, helping an old lady across the street. No, I, I think it's all of those. I really do. And I think the problem is, I mean, I, as you've seen a lot of stuff I share is the good in the world. And if you, yes, you know, watch is. good news network and tanks, good news and some of these, um, uh, you know, positive pages, they get a lot 
of views, a lot of likes, a lot of shares, a lot of all that stuff. And then they, I'm sure they don't do it for the metrics either. Yeah. But I think that's the problem is that, yeah, the algorithm is kind of set up for the hate confrontation you know, element. I don't think that was what they were, you know, wringing their hands and scheming at the inception no. of social media. But sadly, I think it's a reflection of the state of the nation at the moment. But I think people inherently are good. But the problem is because that's the thing that is most attractive on the social media matrix, you get this false perception that that's what's happening all the time. And I think that's yeah. the worst message. And what we're going to discuss today is it's always going to be that threat. But I think that what's not made very clear is that 99% of the population are not doing those horrible things. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because some of the things that you do see, uh, there was something that really got me for a couple of reasons. I used to play baseball and there was a little thing I saw the other day where it was a little league game and the, the pitcher threw a ball and it hit the batter in the head and pretty much knocked him right to the ground. And then the kid kind of sh shook it off after a while and walked out to first base. But the pitcher was, he was extremely upset. It was obvious that he had thrown a ball and hit, in the, hit a player in the head. And a little guy on first base walked all the way over to the pitcher right in the middle of the game, puts his arms around him, gives him a hug, says something to him in, in his ear, you know, like, it's okay. I'm all right. Don't worry about it. Shake it off. And it's, it's those little bits of humanity that means so much. And to know that that little guy, I don't know if I would have been the one who walked over to the pitcher and, and, and put my arms around him and said, it's okay. It's okay. But this little guy had the, the fortitude and the, uh, the good upbringing and everything else to go do it. So uh, there is good. There's a lot of good. And Thank God there is good because I, I too also believe in the inherent goodness of man. Uh, I just think that the, when, because, because quote unquote, we're all good uh, by nature, if you will, uh, when someone does something bad, it's a, it's a spike. We see it, we notice it because again, you opening the door for a lady or helping somebody with their groceries, all of that stuff kind of just is, in the subterfuge, it gets kind of unnoticed by the by the vast majority of people, but it's going on. There is good, and people um, people do good things all the time and do the right things all the time. I agree completely, and I actually had a just just a, not an epiphany. It's a strong word, but I just had a moment in the the grocery store recently where I was looking around and hearing all these conversations at each of the checkouts. And the checkout, you know, men and women were being super friendly. The customers were being super friendly. And so that that's kind of it. We notice the Karens. We notice, you know, the aggressive, you know, road rage incident. We notice these yeah. because we're actually surrounded by most people actually interacting well. And I think if we just take a moment when people are being nice to each other and acknowledge that and just, you know, be present in that moment. I think that will start reminding us that that's most of the time. I mean, unless you live somewhere that's, you know, extremely deep in conflict for whatever reason, yeah, most yeah. of us enjoy, you know, interaction and community where we are. And when you see, I mean, I saw at the store yesterday, some woman was obviously flying through the crosswalk by the, by the supermarket and this guy was shouting at her and it took everyone's attention. 
But that was that one incident, that one moment of selfishness, and I'm sure she deserved, you know, a shout out to be yep. honest. But apart from that, most of my trips to the the grocery store are uneventful. So I think we have to remind ourselves that. You know, people are inherently good. And then an another reminder is when you watch these videos, when the car is overturned or, you know, someone's about to, you know, jump off a bridge or whatever, and you watch the action. When one person initiates that leadership role and people just need to be led a little bit, you see that kind. You don't see people saying, well, I'm not lifting that car. I'm not going to stop that person jumping off the bridge. They all just kind of jump into action. I think that's the inherent good in all of us. Well, you know what? I, I'd like to talk about that. And a little in a moment, because I think there is a, I'm going to write that down. I have, I have something that I've uh, always talked about, which is the Superman. We have an inherent Superman inside all of us. I, I don't want to get there yet because I wanted to say something. Uh, you were saying about the, when you're not in an area where there's inherent conflict and, you know, like maybe a war zone or what's going on in the Ukraine. Uh, I read something a, a while back uh, that was, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he's a fairly well-known either a philosopher or something to that degree, maybe a psychologist or psychiatrist. And he talked about interviewing a bunch of people that were from uh, the uh, Balkan wars uh, or, or the wars in uh, Bosnia and uh, Kosovo and all of that, that stuff. And he said uh, when he interviewed people, which, which seems to be not what you would think you would hear, that some of them, in fact, quite a few of them said, we miss, we miss it. And he said, how, how can that possibly be? He said, uh, and the answers were almost in unison from all these different interviews. It was because we had the most community, the most feeling of being in something together and the most help from our neighbors and pulling ourselves together that we've ever had. And once the conflict was gone, we kind of got back to normal where we were cordial and would say hello and all that and maybe get together with our close friends. But in that time of conflict, they were united as one people uh, undergoing all the same uh, uh, fear of death or destruction or anything like that. And it united them uh, in a cohesive way that, uh, again, points to. I believe also again the inherent goodness in man that when when we are faced with a with a real s h t f I don't want to say the words s h t f hits the fan kind of moment that there are people who will stand up there are people who will come together there are people who will take the the lead and all that and of course as you know uh, inspiration. Um, is a self-generating, uh, it's almost like nuclear fusion. It, you, you have someone that jumps up and inspires others. Uh, they in turn catch the, the wind and it, it carries them along. And that it's a, so it just keeps going and going, going. I'm getting off on a tangent, but. No, no, it's brilliant. And it reminds me of what a lot of people talk about with, with 9-12, the day after 9-11, you know, and, and all that community. And you see all the same in the Grenfell fire in London, you know, all these different, you know, religious uh, organizations, religious groups all banded together, whether it was a temple or a mosque or a church. There are no differences then. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's, that's the issue is, you know, people talk about the comfort crisis and, and those kind of phrases. And I agree. Our life is really good. And, and what this is just my personal opinion now. What I see is 
large organizations trying to divide us and creating boogeymen amongst us, whether it's the police, whether it's, you know, people of color, whether it's the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, you name yeah, yeah. it. To me, our fight right now is unification against the way that at the moment we create leadership in our government, left and right. Yeah. Because yeah. we keep getting duped every four years. We keep hearing the same phrase, <laughs> well, I've got to choose from the lesser of two evils. Out of 330 million people, I think now the next paradigm shift is actually a war against defending against the division of our country. And that's not, you know, pitchforks and torches and going to a, a political building. Obviously, that doesn't work. We saw that a year ago. Um, but it's more not allowing ourselves to be divided, but to unify again, to address the, you know, the, the and I talk about this all the time, the, the, the failure of, of uh, drug prohibition and the mental health crisis and all these things that are leading to this violence that we're seeing on our streets, this, you know, this, the, the border crisis, all these are preventable if we reverse engineer the root. So to me, that is our nine twelve moment is that we have to band together as a nation and stop being allowed to be divided by some of these so-called leaders that are put on our screens. Well, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that in order to do that, number one, we have to dump the labels. We just dump the labels. I, I don't care what you call me. I don't care. If, I really don't care what I call you, etc. You know what I'm saying? Because labels divide. Tribes, the names of tribes, separates the tribes. Think about this. Um, there are people, let's go back to Little League again. Uh, there's people that are just like you and me, good, generally good-hearted, good-spirited folk that wouldn't do harm to anyone uh, for, for any reason except in dire need. And yet you could have those same families on this side of the, of the field, the same families on this side of the field. And if there's a bad call or something, those parents are all of a sudden ready to go to war with each other. And you'll see fights in the stands or after the game and all this and that, because think about it. You're on team A and I'm on team B. And at that moment in time, when we're when our children are playing that game, we're from this tribe and you're from that tribe. So we're going to we're going to band together no matter if a call is good or bad. If it's against our team, it's a bad call. If it's against your team, it's a good call. And I think that's a again, we're going to talk about a little bit, I hope, about the universal principles of human nature. And if we allow people to put us on opposite teams then we are going to be divided. And by God, we are people. We are human beings. I judge people. And to paraphrase uh, Martin Luther King, it's, it's the con not content of your heart, not the color of your skin, which you should be judged by. Always, always, always. Because it, it's, if you're a bad person, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. If you're a good person, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. You're a good person or a bad person. And the, the problem, I think, also is what's happening is if both sides are taking the stance that if you're not with us, the good people, then you must be bad people. And those people over there are looking at the right wing or left wing or whatever that side it's on and going, if you're not on our team, the good team, you're on the bad team. And that, that I think has been 
somehow manipulated and inculcated into our society somehow. Uh, and I can't even tell you, I, I don't even know because I haven't thought or delved into that, but somehow that became almost the norm over the last maybe 5, 10, 15 years. And it's wrong. It's, it's as wrong as you could be possibly uh, for a productive society or a, a civil society. One of Just my, my opinion. No, and I agree. I agree completely. And one of my guests, I think it was when I was recording, I think um, they made such a, a simple observation, but it was so spot on. They said, if you imagine a castle in England, that medieval England, and you're looking over the castle walls, what is the one thing that will put fear in your hearts if those people are unified? As long yeah. as they're fighting amongst each other, then you've got nothing to worry about in the castle. And I was like, that is, that's it. Mic drop. You know what I mean? And when Heck we yeah. actually unified, we're going to want to put, you know, we want to bring the walls of the castle down and make it, you know, make it a, a, an arena that people can have open discussions. But we want to put our best leaders in those positions. I love when Sebastian Junger talks about them as the Iroquois. They uh, that have, was who, that's the guy that I was referencing. Yeah, about I was wondering that. if it was yeah, with, with the, with the uh, Balkan. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but he talked that they had a they had a leader for war and they had a leader for peace and I was like wow that is such a, a great wow. you know philosophy too you you want that you know walk softly and then you want that big stick and you know the chances of that being all in one person are very rare so you have you know a group that's good at war a group that's good at diplomacy and they work hand in hand but um yeah so I mean that, I thought that was such a great analogy and that's what we're seeing we are seeing nothing but the creation of infighting to diminish the power of the community of the nation itself. Well, that's, that's 100% correct. And, and you know what else happens as a result of that? The people in power get to stay in power. Because if we're out here, you know, haggling over what, <laughs> if you're a she or a he or an it or a whatever, uh, then they don't have to worry because they can just go along as usual. And again, you know, you're from England. You, although you weren't alive in the medieval times, but uh, <laughs> was, I was according to my son, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but England had a king and a queen, and they were the absolute power. And the it worked for a couple thousand years maybe or 1500 years or whatever to to bring things together to unify a people and it's it was true in most of the countries in europe and all that but in the end when we came up or when the founding fathers or whoever you want to attribute it to uh when the idea of a representative uh democracy or republic um was conceived that to me no matter the foibles or the mistakes that have been made over the years is still the best possible means of self-governance that exists on the planet earth. And that's why, uh, again, if you bear with me for a minute, uh, at the risk of going off on a tangent, that's, that's one of the things that um, I have found in talking to a lot of young people is they have no sense of history. Because if they really did have a sense of history, they would know that some of the ideas and some of the people that are being foisted on them as being 
revolutionary leaders or visionaries and all that. They were bad, bad people. And I'm, you know, perfect example is when I see a, a, a kid with a picture of a Che Guevara t-shirt, or I see a picture, a kid with a picture of Mao on his t-shirt or Stalin or some of these things. And I'm going, you know what? Maybe it's not your fault that you don't know what, how truly evil some of those people are, but it's somebody's fault for not allowing you to learn how evil some of those people really were. Because again, a lot of the things that are being propagated now, uh, they're not based on historical fact, because again, uh, the definition of crazy is trying to, <laughs> trying to do the same thing over and over again and get a different result or whatever. Uh, I think that uh, when we see the ideas that are being kind of pushed on society, especially young people today, uh, if they knew what communism was really about, uh, or the people who have that absolute power, because communism always, and Marxism, and even socialism, and fascism, it always, it always leads to one or two people or a cadre or uh, of elites that have all the power, and they just suck everything out of the, out of the people and keep them under their thumb. And you know, that's too is unfortunate. I heard Sebastian Gorka one time and he, he said, you know, after World War II, uh, we had the Nuremberg trials and all of the horrors that the Nazis propagated on, on all of Europe and, and the Jews and everyone else that, that they hammered into the ground uh, came. It was in the front pages of all the newspapers. It was on all the, the radio broadcasts. It was in the, uh, the film clips that were before the movies that you went to see. And he said, unfortunate thing is we never had that after the fall of communism in Europe. And he said, I came, my parents came from uh, wherever it is. He's from uh, Yugoslavia or whatever. I can't remember. But he said, we lived under that. And the only thing we, we tried to do every day was figure out how to get out from under it. And eventually, I guess his dad did go to England, I believe, uh, where they put down roots and all that. But kids aren't getting that sense of history. So they're getting whatever narrative now is being kind of put on them to uh, act as a, 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 a put down, can't think of the right word, a put down of the United States uh, or the democratic, the capitalist, the Western um, way of civilization. And I don't think it's right. We're, we're not perfect, but by God, we're way better than anything else that's going on out there. And I don't think they realize that. Yeah. Well, I mean, history is so important. Even when you look at the history of medicine, you know, I mean, what oh, yeah. people were doing for thousands of years that was disregarded the last, you know, 50, 60 to this profit brace system that we have. But mm -hmm. I mean, one of the, the most amazing, you know, healthcare systems, in my opinion, is the UK, the NHS, when fully funded. Um, it's incredible. But how do you hear that referred to here? Socialized medicine. Oh, it's socialism. Wow. They're just, you know, and it's like, no, it's altruistic medicine. We all chip in and we take care of the young, you know, the old and the infirm. That's, mm -hmm. that's a kind of, I'm pretty sure if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or, you know, a Muslim, that's kind of what the prophets were saying is, you know, take yeah. care of people that can't take care of themselves. Doesn't mean you abuse the system. So even, you know, these words are being used to kind of push people against things that 
would be a much better system for our own country as well. But yeah, I mean, the history is maddening because that's one thing that I've talked about over and over again. If you talk about slavery or, you know, the, the genocide of World War II, I mean, all these things, they were all perpetrated by a few people. And what have we got now in Russia? We once again are being told the boogeyman is the entire country of Russia. What well, do you think that most Russians, you know, living in them uh, have any, a, a, any clue what's going on and B, any desire to invade Ukraine? No. no. So we keep failing to learn the history's lessons, which is, as we talked about, don't let the few gain control of the masses. We are the base of the pyramid and really the pyramid should be inverted as well. You know, you're, you're, you're in your words spot on about that because the average Russian, he just wants to go to work, have some food on the table, protect his his wife and, and children, and he's just going about his daily activity just like you or I do on a daily basis. And it's the it's that faction of their government or whatever that's propagating this whole thing. It's interesting you brought that up because I was I was heard somebody last night that uh, they were talking about how they, oh, it was uh, Putin's brain, uh, whoever that gentleman is, but that's what they call him. And uh, he was going on and on and on about the Nazi regime that has taken hold in the, in the Ukraine. And I'm going, the Nazi regime? Boy, you guys are doing a wonderful job of of hitting the most hot button that could ever exist in the country or culture of Russia would be to call your enemy Nazis or to make it seem that they are an extension of the World War II Nazis that invaded your country and killed 45 million people in World War II. So if you look at things, again, I'm, I'm fascinated by human nature and things that uh, you can look at Russia and, and take analogies that apply directly to the United States. You can look at England and take analogies that apply directly to, uh, you know, any other country you can take, but you have to be able to do that. That's, that's something that I don't think a lot of people are introspective enough, or maybe they're too busy or maybe they Maybe you and I are just people that are super interested in that stuff. My wife would hope that I had people, would be less interested in it because, again, it dominates a lot of our conversations. She goes, man, why do you always have to talk about that stuff? But I'm fascinated by it. And I think that I believe now in the, uh, I don't want to say the twilight of my years, but the, the second half of my, of my life, uh, I'm really driven by trying to make people aware of things that I think they should be aware of for the, for the greater good. Uh, and I've kind of dedicated a, a huge portion of my life now to uh, trying to get the good word out that, and, and to help people and to give them information and things that uh, might get them out of a jam or make a correct decision. And uh, so I'm doing my little part. Like I, know you're doing your part. Uh, I think that it's the more of the more people that there are like you uh, that are given a platform for guys like me to talk and things like that. I, I just think that uh, eventually we're going to catch some, that the snowball will get enough momentum and be big enough that uh, we should be able to 
make the world a better place to live. Yeah, I agree completely. I think this this medium, this podcast, I think documentaries, you know, I mean, there's certain areas where you realize there's no filter. You know, you used to have to go through a publisher, which funny enough, I'm trying to do with my, my first book now, but, you know, you used to have to go through and are they going to pick you up and are they going to edit it? And then can you say anything because you're the writer of the book? Will they throw you out? Blah, blah, blah. Well, now you can publish your own book on Amazon. You can have, your, you know, a podcast where you speak with no filters. And obviously you can use that for good or you can use that for, you know, negative stuff. But I truly believe this unfiltered information, this access to get to people's ears and sow seeds and get them to think and, you know, start seeing crossover. I mean, I always talk about the Venn diagram. When you have, you know, you might have someone who's a very, very kind of spiritual yoga teacher and someone who's a a Delta operator and someone who's a a teacher in Sudan and then they, all these things intersect. You're like, okay, well, there's probably truth where all these people from all these backgrounds are actually, you know, crossing over. So I think it's a very powerful medium personally. Well, I, I do believe in universal truths and principles. And in that book that we were going to talk about, um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of what I've put in there that's based off these universal principles. And uh, did you like the book? I've I did. Thank you. Yeah. So, so bad guy with a gun volumes one and two. Um, it was, as we talked, you know, sadly, ironically, it was well timed because when it came out, you know, there were multiple more horrendous shootings, including Evaldi uh, in Buffalo. Um, but, you know, I had uh, Varg Freeborn on the show, wrote an amazing book on violence. I had, um, I got to check my notes because poor Mark's last name is long. Mark Polymeropoulos, <laughs> um, who was a CIA agent, talked again about violence and, um, you know, danger recognition and those kind of things. This is such an important conversation to have. And again, there is no one right answer. So the more people that we hear, the more voices, some may be teachers, some may be police officers, some may be, you know, like you in, in the, the kind of weapons and defense world. We need to get these voices out there so we can start pulling out what works for our school, our church, our home. So, so talk to me about the book. What made you decide to put pen to paper after all these years? Well, the, I've been teaching all of this stuff for years and years and also uh, observing, you know, throughout the world, all of the things that are going on. And I decided that I should put it down uh, in a format that I could get out to people and uh, have them take their time in being able to read it. In other words, you and I can talk on a podcast and you could come up with some profound statements and all that, but uh, people aren't going to listen to a podcast more than twice, like five, six, seven, eight times. But with a book, uh, because I know how I am, I'll read a book and then I'll go back and go, damn, I want to read that first chapter where they were talking about this or that. And I'll go back and read it again. Uh, And so I I really love uh, physical books. I have a huge library. I see that you have quite a library behind you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I grow my bookshelves. Yeah. And uh, I've got, I've got thousands of thousands of books and it's, I've referenced them all the time because uh, unfortunately, and, and I have thousands of books on my Kindle and all that too. But the, the, the problem is, is like, Oh God, what page was that on? Cause they're not even in page numbers. Now they're in you know, like 35% or 40%. You're you know, where you're at in the book. I'm like, damn, I'm going to have to scroll through 
like 10,000 pages and hope that I don't miss that statement that I'm looking for. So I decided to put it down in a book. And again, uh, it's, it's information that I believe uh, is valid for people. And like in the, in the classes that I've always taught over the years, I have never, ever taught anything that I didn't believe in my heart, my heart of hearts, was 100% valid and number two, doable for the average person. Uh, because I've been there and done that. I've seen people teach things just for the, quote, sake of teaching or to impress you or anybody else with what their gargantuan skill level is. But it's whatever you teach or show somebody or whatever, it has to work for the average person. Because again, uh, I always say, look, uh, look at a, a mathematics instructor and he goes, you go to his house and you look at his library and it's everything from advanced mathematics and calculus and physics and theoretical mathematics and all that. And he's teaching an eighth grade uh, arithmetic math class, right? He's got to understand that if he's got 40 students, 40 of them are not as interested in math as he is, and they just want to be able to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, and that'll get them through pretty much everything they'll ever have to do in their life. But as an instructor, you have to be able to understand what your audience is and give them the information that'll go through their open door. Because first you have to open that door up, but then you have you can't push a semi-truck through a a door. You have to push things through that door that they're going to be able to understand or look at or relate to. And again, like everything else, if I give you a hundred things, I'm hoping that you get three or four out of that because those four things or whatever they may be are the things that you're going to, that's just, again, a human nature thing. You go to a seminar and learn something on, on any subject whatsoever. You generally walk away with half a dozen things that you actually remember. <laughs> so I just want those half dozen things to be something that might save your life. Well, I think another thing that I've observed in many, many fields and many experts that have come on here is you have people that are like, this is how you should do X. And then you have people like, here are some principles for you to apply to doing X. And I think that's the key. And that's what you've done here. If you say, you know, on every classroom, and every school shooting, you should do this. Well, no two classrooms are the same. No two environments are the same. But the moment you put in principle, as we'll talk about, um, you know, barricade, evade, etc. Now you've got something that's fluid that you can apply to whatever situation you're in. Well, it's it, those universal principles exist. Human beings, we're, we're the same as as we were when we were living in caves. Uh, we react to certain things certain way. We do things a certain way. We certainly still have two legs, two arms, and two eyes. So we, we haven't grown a, a, another arm to be able to hit you with three punches. We can still only hit you with two. So my point though is uh, human beings haven't changed. The technology that we can use certainly changed. And the environment that people are put into has certainly changed. And also, I think the, I guess, well, let me, let me digress for just a second. When we were talking, uh, I was talking to uh, 
Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman a, a while back about um, some of these universal principles. And we're, he were, we were talking about uh, the training that a top tier one like Delta operator or, or a Navy SEAL gets as opposed to uh, a 14-year-old kid and going, how are they able to wreak such havoc and do it in a, you know, again, I'm going to be very clinical. So I'm going to try not to, uh, uh, don't misread that I'm not being sympathetic or emotional about it, but I, I need to be able to define things clinically. How are they able to act so efficiently in a high stress environment? Well, guess what? They've been in that high stress environment for the last four or five years. Every time they put on one of those darn video games where they're shooting people, because again, um, when you go to um, like a, a police uh, academy and I go to, to give a lecture there or a seminar, I always ask how many people here at the academy have fired a gun before they enrolled in the academy. And of course, if I'm in a big city, uh, environment. If, if I've got 40, 50, you know, cadets there, there might be 10 or 12 or 15 that will raise their hand, you know, that they've fired weapons before. If I go to Kentucky, every single hand goes up in the room. And it's a matter of thinking about, especially with the police departments. Um, now you've got a person that we're we're literally going to put you through some training, strap a gun on your side, and literally give you a license to kill. Now, I don't mean that in a negative way, but we are now have given you the right to make a decision as to whether you need to shoot someone or not. And I think that a lot of people that become police officers now maybe haven't made that introspective journey into what happens if I ever have to do that. Now, where am I going with this? Those kids that storm into a, a school or a shopping mall or whatever, they made that decision a long, long time ago. They just had to get to the execution part of their, for whatever it was that pushed them past the tipping point where now I'm gonna turn it from gaming into real life they have an, an actual experience in pointing a gun at another person, firing it, seeing them get, you know, blown up or, or shots, blood splatter, et cetera, fall under the ground. Those, those damn games are so realistic now that it's almost like you're watching a, a, a video of a body cam from an actual incident. And so, you know, we've got to understand that there are people out there that they're getting practice in doing these kind of bad things, even though they may not be consciously aware of it. And they may never act on in a negative way or take it to uh, violence against other people. They may just be gamers that really love doing that. Who am I to say that's right or wrong? Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything, but I do believe that when people make the mistake. Again, when we talk about school shootings, it's like, um, how could he do that? Well, this isn't the first time he's ever done it. Uh, my buddy, John Hollister, the ex-police officer, one of my dearest friends, told me at one time he went to a uh, murder scene 
and there was a young gal who was dead. Uh, she'd been beaten to death by her husband. And he turned to the rookie who was with him and he said, I got to ask you a question. You think this was the first time he ever hit her? And the rookie kind of looked at him and was like, uh, where you, what do you mean? He goes, it starts with a shove. Goes to a slap, goes to a punch, goes to a whatever. It's the same thing. These, these kids and these people that do these kind of things, they started as perhaps a uh, uh, antisocial behavior when they were a bully on the, on the playground, and, which is interesting, too. And if you look at a lot of the school shootings, one of the motivating factors was all, in a large number of them, the kids that are doing the shooting, they were bullied. They were bullied. So take a long, long story around the, the curve here. Um, when you say we've got to stop the causes of this, bullying is another factor that needs to be, you, you know, you may say, well, how's bullying? How is me preventing bullying going to stop a, 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 a mall shooting or something way, way, way down the road or a school shooting way down the road? They are related. And like you said, that Venn diagram, these things, it's all interconnected. And that's why one of the other things that I'm so, so passionate about as having been a victim of being bullied, um, those things leave, I suffer from the effects of that today. I'm 67 years old. I still think about the stuff that happened to me when I was eight or nine or 10, 12 years old. And I'm telling you, there's, there's times when I think, man, if I could catch that son of a bitch. <laughs> so, you know, again, a universal principle, it's those kind of things, the cause and effect things that we may not think are even related. They are related. And you got to be able to sort through all the chaff and everything and get to the point where you can say, okay, you know what, let's start with, with these causal things and address all of those before we end up. And again, everything has to be addressed because we're in a situation now where we have causing and eventual effects, they're all taking place simultaneously because it's not a, it's not a start to finish and then a start to finish. It's a start, 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 finish, 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 finish. So it's just a, it's like dominoes. They just keep coming and coming and coming. Uh, and one of the things that I want to stress in the book is preparation. Uh, you live down in Florida. You guys know there's going to be hurricanes. It's a fact. So you have stuff ready for when the hurricane gets there. Well, you don't get to pick violence and you can't look on the, the violence weather station the and say, okay, yeah. And say, okay, somebody's going to start shooting in a movie theater at eight o'clock next Sunday. You don't get to choose that. And you get, you don't get to know when that's going to happen. So as you know, the people that prepare are the ones that survive. The ones that aren't prepared that survive, there's a lot of luck involved in that. And probably the good deeds of the people who are prepared in helping them out of a jam. So when it comes to violence, especially, um, you don't get to pick when it happens. It picks you. So I always tell people in terms of, I'm a big, big, big proponent of uh, uh, concealed carry. I pray to God that I will never have to clear leather with my weapon. 
but I will thank God if I ever have to, that I have that weapon with me. Because as a good guy, which I think I am, I would never, ever do anything unless it was 100% justified and not just justified by me being pissed off at some guy that cut, cut me off in a, in a car road rage thing, but justified as would be seen by the average man. So those are the codes that I live by personally. And, you know, it's, it's just being prepared uh, both physically and psychologically. Because again, when we, when we talk about bad things, that's an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable thought. Uh, you know, so a lot of people live in a state of denial and, I, and it, you can't blame them. It's not pleasant uh, to think of what would I, what would I do if I walked into a, a mall and someone shot and it hit my wife? or hit my daughter, what, what would I do? It's not pleasant to think about those things, but I don't think it's unrealistic to be prepared for those kind of things, to think about them in terms of what would I do if, what would I do if this happens to me? And have a plan, have some type of plan in place, whether it's just being aware of other people around you. We talk about situational awareness in the book. That's a huge, huge factor. Uh, being aware of the people around you, because I, I, as the father of two daughters and a boy, when my daughters were of the age, when they were going out to parties and to bars or to festivals or whatever, I always told them, I said, look, you got to understand something. You may not be aware that somebody's got their eyes on you a bad person is watching you. You may not even know that's happening. You may not even know they're there, but they know you're there. And there's some in every crowd, no matter what. So I always try to prep them with, you have to be aware. Don't, don't assume that everybody around you uh, is looking at the same movie that you are because there's bad people do exist. And again, wasn't to make them paranoid. It wasn't to take the fun out of them being able to have fun, but it was just to be somewhere in your level of consciousness, be aware that something could happen and have some kind of a plan or, you know, don't walk out to the parking lot by yourself, get, get a bouncer to walk with you or, or a friend or whatever. Uh, but that ounce of prevention uh, when it comes to extreme violence is it's not worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention is a lifesaver. It's a life saving thing. And so it doesn't take someone being obsessed, obsessed like me with developing physical skills and practicing and doing that all the time. That's, that's what I do. Not so much for the ability to defend myself or my family as now, as I look back, it's to gain insight into what I can teach to someone else that might help them defend their family or their children or their wives or their loved or innocent bystanders of, of any type.
Sorry to dominate the conversation, James. I, no, you're my guest. You're supposed to dominate the conversation. I got an on switch, and once, once the volume goes on, I'm, I always tell you, if I'm talking more than the guests, then I'm the world's worst interviewer. So, um, But I want to circle around just quickly before sure. we get away from it. So yeah. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's book, Assassination Generation, was a real eye-opener for me. And we, we did, a, I think, two interviews on the show, I think. Um, and when people hear of the video games, I myself am guilty of this early, early days, rolling your eyes and go, well, how can a video game you know, perpetrate violence? But when you listen to him unpack that whole issue... And you have the first-person shooter element that we use to train our soldiers for our law enforcement. And there's a desensitization. You have the the score beating. You know, some of these shooters literally killed more kids than the shooter before. You take the psychiatric medications that pretty much all of these kids were on. You add the bullying. And then most importantly, a thing that I talk about all the time, what is hand-in-hand with video gaming, it's sleep deprivation. These kids are up all night a lot of them taking Adderall and those kind of things too so now you start bringing psychosis into what is already a pre-existing mental health element and now there's a disassociation where they probably believe they are in a video game we had one in here in Ocala and actually I'll, I'll kind of parallel to that in a second as well but the moment he fired the first shot he basically dropped his weapon there was an incredibly courageous teacher who talked him down and, and then got him to just, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but but not mm-hmm. touch the weapon. Then the SRO in that school ran towards the gunfire. Kudos to that gentleman as well. And, you know, I think that was a cry for help. And I really feel like that first shot just shook him out of that that false reality. Conversely, Ivaldi, some of these other ones we've seen, that those kids were on a mission and there was no pulling them out. They were already, you know, deep into that. But I think that's what people need to understand with the video game conversation. I say the same even with with our films. The concept oh. that you have a busy day at work and you're like, oh, I'm just going to go unwind and, and watch a, a cabin full of teenagers be mutilated and murdered before I go to bed. Take a step back and think about that. But that's not the only element. It's all these other compounding factors that create this perfect storm in some of our most mentally ill children that then send them into a school with a backpack full of weapons. Yeah. Well, I, we see it. There's no, there's no arguing those conclusions about this because they're, they're real. Uh, they've repeated again and again and again, and they will continue to repeat. Uh, one thing I want to add about the, uh, when you were talking about all of those factors leading to the, the sleep, sleep deprivation and all of that, the other thing is family values. And a family a family needs a mom and a dad. I think divorces, single family parents, et cetera. Now that's not to say that the most sterling individuals on earth could have been raised by a single parent, a single mom, a single dad, whatever. I'm sure that's happened millions and millions of times. But if you were to look at, I think a contributing factor in almost all of these uh, individuals, there's, there's really no family life. Uh, and if you look at it even a little deeper, kids that spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on video games, there's no family life there. Whether they turn out to be a shooter or not, what kind of person are they going to turn out to be? Because you got to engage. A, fa- a family is just people always say, oh, marriage is a job. It's work. You have to work. Your spouse has to work at making that marriage work. Well, it isn't just the marriage. It's the family. A family is also work. Uh, 
it's not just, it just doesn't happen and everybody grows up and is happy and, and successful and all that. There are the, the mom and the dad have responsibilities, moral, ethical, uh, the list goes on and on and on as examples of what those children should turn out to be. And I don't, I, honest to God, I don't think a lot of people, parents, I, I'm, I would really like to know how many people, I'm talking from a man's point of view, how many men look in the mirror in the morning and go, God damn it. I'm the kind of person I want my kid to grow up to be. I don't think they ever have that conversation. And I think a lot of times uh, they think that it's like, well, it, was, it really wasn't my fault that he failed high school or he didn't do sports or he, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, it is your fault. And your responsibility is to set an example. Your responsibility is to be the protector. Your responsibility is to be the person who puts a, a roof over their head, uh, meals on the table, and spends time with your children. When you said, hey, go home after a hard day and watch a, uh, a gore movie with a guy with a chainsaw cutting up teenagers, who wants to do that? Give me one, give me one reason one legitimate reason why I should spend two hours doing that, watching something like that. There is none. There really is none. Take those two hours, call your daughter, go to your son's room, what, whatever it happens to be, engage him in some way, shape or form, make that your goddamn habit and not the habit of sitting on your lazy rear end getting mind-numbing BS pumped into your brain on it. People always say to me, Ernie, how do you do, how do you run a business? How do you do the training? How do you write all these books? How do you do all that stuff? How the hell do you do it? Well, there's a couple of ways. There's a couple of ways I do it. I get up at four o'clock in the morning. That's the start of my day. When I get home, I work, we work four tens here at my company. So, 10 hours is here at work. When I get home, I've got chores to do because we have a ranch. We've got animals, chickens, horses, the whole nine yards, right? My day isn't done at all. I don't watch TV. I don't sit and vegetate. It's a habit. We fall into habits. And people who fall into the habit of laziness, they don't get results. They certainly do not have a goal set that they're working towards. Life is all about having a, where do I want to be? Where am I right now? Where do I want to be next? And putting some kind of a preparatory plan or something in motion to get me from here to there. It's, it's, and, and then living by certain maxims, like I, I, one of my most favorite of all times is from Dan Gable, the wrestling coach. He said, uh, if something's necessary, do it every day. If it's not necessary, don't do it at all. Well, I'm telling you right now, James, I evaluate on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. Is this necessary? Should, should I really be doing this or should I be doing something that's putting me on, the, on the, my path? And 
it's just a matter of making habits because here's the deal. A habit, habit doesn't care if it's good, doesn't care if it's bad. It's just a habit. So if you look at your life and go, man, I've got some good habits and I've got some bad habits. Well, jettison the bad habits, only do the things, form the habits that are good habits. And by God, I'll tell you what, your life cleans up very, very quickly because we waste a lot of time. And again, I'm over the hill on the half, halfway point in my life. I know that. Man, time becomes very, very important. And they always say, you know, youth is wasted on the, on the young or whatever. That's a fact because you have time. You have a whole lifetime of time and you let it sift through your hands. When I was 25 years old and working in a factory, there were a couple guys that just had the worst luck. Everything bad that could happen to them went bad. Their car got repossessed, their refrigerator got busted, the whatever, all, all this stuff. And one day I was 25 and I was looking at that and I was going, you know what? Because I, I like to think of myself as being kind of analytical about things. I, I looked at it and I said, why, why are all these bad things happening to these people? And then all of a sudden I was like, damn, his car was repossessed because he didn't make the payments on it. His guarantee on his refrigerator was denied because he fiddled with it and tried to extend the, the warranty or whatever. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, all those bad things? That was self-induced. They caused all this bad thing to happen. So if I can, at that time, I looked at it and said, if I can cause bad things to happen in my life, can I cause good things to happen in my life? I'm going to give that a try. And so I was, and it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time, but I was like, damn, I'm only going to do things that make good things happen to me and my family. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And I dedicated my life to it. And it's, it's been, it got so easy. That's the thing. I think a lot of people spend, they do a lot of hard work being dumb. And, and I, I don't know what other way to, to uh, phrase it, but you can spend a lot of energy doing negative things. If you spent the same amount of energy doing positive things, you'd start to see an uptick because it, at the end of your life, success is really about self-fulfillment. It, it isn't about that you had a, this car or that car or this house in this area. It's about self-fulfillment. What? Ask yourself, what fulfills me? And then look at the things, okay, gambling, that fulfills me. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. List all of those things, gambling, uh, drinking, uh, smoking, uh, working out, uh, fixing my car, whatever. Get the whole list and then go through the list and go, wait a minute. That's a negative thing. That's a negative thing. That's a positive thing. That's a negative thing. And then just cross those negative things off the list and only look at what fulfills you that are the good things. Because in the end, in the end. If you lead a good life, you will be fulfilled. And I mean doing good deeds, helping others, 
being an example that people can can look at and go, you know what, I want to be like that person right there. That's that is true fulfillment. It has nothing to do with stuff. You know what I mean? And, and sorry, I'm getting off on a preachy. <laughs> no, but I but I agree with you, and I, and I, I actually it's funny. I posted it's my son's birthday yesterday, and I posted about the the to and fro, the the tug of war that is trying to be a good parent. And you have yeah. days where you're like, okay, I I crushed that yesterday, his birthday. I excelled yeah. as a parent yesterday. Many many days prior to that, I you know I didn't. As as um, one of my guests pointed out, he's like, you know, can you can you say that you are a great parent? You know, hundred percent of the time, ninety percent of the time, eighty percent. And then when you actually look, and like all those times yeah. where you decided to stay on the chair, the couch, whatever, instead of getting up and kicking a ball with them, whatever it was, yeah. you're like, yeah, each one of those is is a you know a, a, an L on that side. And you got to give yourself grace. You can't just be a full time parent. You've got other things you have to do. But yeah, it's that juggling act. It's that balance. And I think what you were talking about with the you know the, the family unit, whether it's a mom and a dad, or a mom and a mom, or a dad or a dad, or a single parent understanding that that is your responsibility to raise that child to be as kind and strong as possible. But also, I think another part that isn't usually in the conversation is understanding that you can't do it all. And what I've been so amazed at is the power of mentors in my son's life. Oh, so you realize that other people, you you trust other people, but you also got to say, well, that is someone's father. So what does that mean? Newsflash, motherfucker. That means that you have to be a mentor for other people's kids as well. And then you get into that, it takes a village mentality. And I think that is where it really all comes together. In the household, you do your part, whatever the dynamic is. You know, I'm I'm remarried and, you know, the the first first marriage sadly was was, you know, not savable. It really wasn't. But this but I'm, you know, absolutely blissfully in love with my wife now. But you use what you have, whatever you know dynamic you have, and you try and make it as good as you can. And then you allow other mentors in the community to help raise your child and you become a mentor yourself in whatever shape or form that is so you can pay that back as well. Well, the thing about it is you do your best. We're not, we are not up to the standards of Jesus Christ. We will never be. We are imperfect imitations of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can't use that ultimate mentor as our goal. Will I get there? I'll get a lot closer to it if I try to get there than if I don't try to get there. And I get, I think that's an important factor also. Uh, like David Goggins, you know, you talk about mentors. I've got I got a long list of mentors um, and people that have inspired me. And he said, hey, man, most people quit at 40% and think they've done 100%. Uh, that's true because I've been there. And when I talk about uh, me being on a soapbox, maybe preaching down to an audience saying, hey, you got to be this, you got to do that. It, you know why I'm so adamant about it? Because I'm making up for lost time. I squandered a lot of what I'm trying to convince people not to do. I squandered a lot of time. When I started this whole career path and everything, I, it just sounds so braggadocious. I'm not even going to go there, but I, I, I worked all the time, all the time. And I missed a few years before I realized, uh, 
holy smokes, you know, these kids are getting, I can't remember. I can't remember when we were taking my daughter to ballerina lessons because I was so effing busy. It'd be like, damn, I got to take her five o'clock to the dance lessons. Damn it. I wanted to get this done or that done. You know what? That's, that's not, that's not good. And that was me for a long, long time. So why am I so passionate about this stuff? It's become something that I just don't, knowing that from self-experience, I just don't want other people to, to miss the boat because I remember having a conversation with my mom one time um, and I said something to her about life. Oh, how life speeds up. As you get older, life seems to speed up. A year only take, think about it. When you were in, in even in high school, a school year was a long, long time. A math now, class was a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few of those classes too. Um, but now it's like, wow, it's almost Christmas again. It's almost Christmas again. It's going to be here like that. And I said something to her. I said, it seems like, and I, and I was young. I was probably, again, 25, 26 years old. And I said, uh, seems like life is speeding up as you get older. And she looked at me and she said, Ernie, it goes by in the blink of an eye. And that hit me. That was a gut check right there because I'm looking at someone who has a, a life experience and can say something like that, that I wouldn't have thought of because when you're, when you're young and dumb, you're young and dumb and you don't look at uh, what mark am I going to make in this world so much as um, I want to buy that new car or whatever. And we waste a lot of time uh, pursuing those things when you always can, I'm not saying that's bad, but the rest of the time that you're not pursuing those things, spend it on, spend it on being a good person, spend it on being that inspiration, spend it on being that mentor that you're talking about. Because, you know, how important is a mentor? For gosh sakes, almost everything that I have done in my life is because Either I've seen someone else who did it and I admired it so greatly, or someone has been in my inner circle and either through osmosis or where they've actually been a, a conscious mentor to, to me, uh, they've, changed, they've changed me. And it, it is important. It's super important. And again, not to get off on another side road, but that's why it, it pisses me off to a degree that I can hardly express when a world famous superstar sports figure is a jerk. Because you know what? You are there because of all the people not taking away their practice time skills, their abilities, the time they spent 12 hours a day practicing whatever it was, whether it's shooting uh, basketballs or throwing pitches or whatever, not taking any of that apart. But when you reach a point where you become so famous that you've got millions of followers, if you will, you are by proxy, you are a mentor to those people. There is a responsibility that if you are a good person, you would say, dang, this is my chance now to do good. Look at the platform that I have, all of these people. Hey, you know what? 
screw those Nike tennis shoes. Don't buy those damn things. They're made by kids over here in, in China. Buy from an American-made company or a company that's green or whatever the hell it happens to be. But to, to sit there and act like a dope, you, like John Wayne said, man, life is tough. And if you're stupid, it's real tough. Well, some of those guys, they may be famous, but they're just plain stupid. Because if you can't realize that, hey, I'm here because of all these people that are looking up to me, then you are, you're missing life. You're missing everything. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why all this stuff makes me so. <laughs> well, I mean, I think but, when you're trying to, when you're tr truly trying to make a difference in the world, when you're trying to be kind, when you're trying to be a, a, a semblance of a protector in your community and you do see people i mean i'll give you a perfect example take humans out specifically look at the wasted opportunity the the covid you know the, the pandemic what we could have done to address physical health mental health i mean we could have overhauled our schools and the nutrition that's served there the pe programs and nothing so shame on everyone that had that platform though that you know complete focus that most of the world had and most of the so-called leaders absolutely abused it. It was never about health. So, no, you know, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about, you mentioned physical fitness and stuff for, we briefed on it there for a second. Um, that's another thing that I believe when we look at our health system in, in here in the United States, and it's funny because I just uh, can't remember what, who it was, it was either a comedian or, oh no, it was uh, the, the guy who has the late night TV show, Bill Maher. And he said, uh, he, he raised a storm actually by saying, you know what, the people that have, who have made being overweight or obese acceptable and even to be admired by some, those people have blood on their hands because I'm telling you right now, people that are overweight, and I would say obesity, and I don't know what that factor is, how many pounds over what your probably healthy weight is, but I've heard that up to 60 to 70% of all uh, health problems that occur later in life uh, are due to being overweight, whether it's diabetes or joint pain or heart pain or whatever, right? Well, he was spot on. And he said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull any punches. You, you shouldn't be overweight. You shouldn't accept overweight. We shouldn't have let some political agenda push us to say, hey, it's okay. Be proud of who you are. Be proud if you weigh 240 pounds and you're only five foot three. No, that's wrong. Okay. You should be five foot three. You should weigh 115 pounds. Five foot six, 135 pounds, whatever. You should be in shape because uh, you owe it. And, and it's funny. He said this. He goes, why don't we just go interview a 90-year-old fat person? Is there, is there any of them around here? Anybody we can call up to come on up and talk to? There are no 90-year-old obese people. <laughs> they don't live that long. And I think, again, a responsibility to yourself is to stay healthy, for God's sake. And again, in this regard, I'm not making up for lost time because I've, 
I've striven to be physically fit and strong and healthy my entire life. And here's the cool thing. My wife, my daughters, both of them, they're now my grandchildren, my son, they are health addicts. And I don't mean that in the sense that they go and work out for 12 hours a day like, like I used to do. And I know you know exactly what I'm talking about because you could never spend, and I wish I had more time to hit that bag. You know what I mean? But my point is, is that my example has now filtered down through them multi-generational so that their kids now eat healthy and they don't eat junk food and they do participate in sports and they do stay active and all that. And no one in my family is, is overweight. None of them. And so I have to pat myself on the back. That's one good thing that I've accomplished in my life. I believe for sure that I can put my finger on, but you know, when we talk about uh, the, I mentioned in the book about teach your children to learn how to fight. There's nothing wrong with learning how to fight. Nothing wrong as a, as a human being who has survived as a species uh, Homo sapiens sapiens for probably 500,000 years or so uh, as modern man, if you will, we had to fight and scrap, whether it was against cave bears or other Cro-Magnons that were trying to take our water supply or whatever. We've had to fight and scrap to survive as a species. It's in our nature to be able to defend ourselves, protect ourselves, or unfortunately, take something that belonged to someone else if that was something we needed to, to survive. And if we now are what I would consider to be civilized people, we're not, we can eliminate, hopefully, I want to take your stuff because I need it to survive. We, we've provided enough things for all of us that no one has to go and do that. But we are still human beings. We are a machine. We need to be well-oiled. We need to be well-fueled. And every once in a while, you got to floor it to keep that engine running good. Learn to fight. If I'm going to do a physical activity, and believe me, I've done everything that anybody who's into fitness and exercise has ever done. I've done every kind of program from free weights to every everything trend that's come along in the last 67 years i've been on it taking bits and pieces of what i thought fit me or worked well for me and discarding what i didn't think but learn to fight also gives me physical fitness it fuels that uh need for competition and things like that it fuels the need for stress because that's the other thing that i think we may be neglecting for a human being to continue to evolve physically, emotionally, and, and spiritually, we need stress. We need to face a task. We need to be able to go, damn, this is going to be a hard one. I've got to charge in and do it. Got to move those bricks. Got to do this. Got to do whatever it is. Got to grab that wheelbarrow. We need stress and we need physical stress to keep this body in tune. Teach your kids to fight. You get all of that, plus you get self-defense. You get the ability in the end that if you're at a damn mall and some guy 
doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a gun, but some guy's beating an old lady or something. I know for a fact that I will do better grabbing that guy and wrestling him to the ground because I've had a lifetime of learning how to fight than if I had never been involved in any of that. So it's, again, I'm a little bit of a obsessed about this as you might well know, but I've seen some of your videos too. So I think you, I think you're on kind of the same page. Um, yeah. It's, it's important to learn how to fight for a couple of different reasons. When you are in the ring, I mean, I believe me, I've got a whole section in that book about sports and why sports is so important, competitive sports, team sports, individual sports. And then what I call, uh, I, I can't remember what I call it, but it's time sports. In other words, you're running the hundred yard dash basically against the clock rather than against the, the other individuals uh, in tennis. It's, me against you. In uh, football, it's us against them. So you've got all those different levels. But fighting or individual combat sports is when I step into the ring or onto the mat, it's me. I'm here by myself. My team may be all the way around the mat, and there may be fans in the stands or whatever. But right here, right now, it's me and him. Now, that teaches you a lot about yourself, because in order to do that, you have to have personal confidence. You have to have the courage to put, put it on the line, so to speak, and know that that guy standing across from you looking at you with this, that scowl is going to try and do the same thing to you that you're going to try and do to him. That's a scary place because you are by yourself. And I think that there's a lot of character that can be learned by forcing kids. And I use the term force, forcing kids to participate in these types of events, whether it's on a wrestling team or even football teams and all of those other things, because it all, it all comes down to you've got to toe the line. And you've got to prepare for it. You've got to pick yourself up once you've been knocked down and get on with it. I'll, I'll give you a funny example. I don't know if you're a soccer guy or not, so don't take offense to it. But uh, my kids didn't end up playing baseball, but they all played soccer. My son played for a couple of years because I was a coach for a couple of years and all that. But um, they all played soccer. And soccer was always like, oh, man, that's a, it's a good sport. Don't get me wrong. But the antics that are that take place, especially in the in the games where somebody bumps into somebody and they're down on the ground screaming about their ankles hurt and all this and that and blah blah blah. I watched a game that was televised between the All Blacks and the Irish National Rugby Team, and it was in Chicago, and it was one of the first network. Uh, presentations of rugby. You, over in the U.S., you don't hardly see any rugby. You'll, you'll see it on some obscure sports channel at 11 o'clock at night. You know what I mean? So they mic'd the ref. And I saw this Irish lad get hammered by one of the All Blacks. And he hit him so hard that it, it was like a, 
one of those cartoon things. The guy flew up off the ground and came back down on his back. And you could tell that he was seeing stars, right? And he turned over and he was kind of on all fours. And as the ref went by, he said, if you're not injured, get up off the ground and carry on with the game. And I was like, damn rugby, man, that's, that's my sport. If I, if I was 18 years old or 15 years old, man, that would have been my sport because that's, again, that kind of character that you get from picking yourself up off the ground. If you're not injured, get up off the ground and carry on with the game. And I'm like, I love that attitude. And, and I, I believe personally that a lot of that, if you will, if I were to say, where did my character come from? I think it came from those interpersonal competitions and uh, whether it was jujitsu or boxing or karate or any, any, cause I, I played in all of them. I, I, I really jumped in into all of them full force too. Not just nothing. None of that was ever a hobby for me. It was a way of life. In fact, I remember being at the uh, Filipino Cali Academy, which was uh, run by two gentlemen, Dan Anasanto and Richard Bastillo. And I remember Richard one time. Uh, no, it was, it was Dan that said this. He said, uh, no, 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 it was Richard. I'm sorry. Because he said, turn to the person next to you, shake their hand and say, it's been nice knowing you. See you later. Bye. And we were all standing there looking at each other like, what the heck's he talking about? And it was like, I don't know what he means. And he goes, because next week, half of you will be gone. And we all looked at each other like, now what's he talking about? He goes, because tonight we start full contact kickboxing. And it really was full contact. There was no, it was a bunch of guys trying to beat the living hell out of each other. And Here's the funny thing. Everybody in that class looked at each other and said, not me. No way. I'm here forever. Next week, there were always uh, 50 kids in each iteration, 50 students. Next week, there's 25. I mean, he'd done this enough times for enough years to know this is, this is what happens. Next week, there's 25. So we had another discussion. He said, here's the deal. A year from now, because we had six months of training before that was introduced to the school. A year from now, uh, there's going to be about four or five of you left. And everybody was like, dang, that's crazy. Two years from now, there'll be one or two. Those are the lifetime martial artists. Those are the guys who will be here 25 years from now or still training for the entirety of their life. And by God, he was absolutely spot on. And I was lucky enough to be that, that one percenter, if you will, of one of those guys, because it was never a hobby. It was never a sport. It was a way of life for me. And again, that's part of why I'm so passionate about all of this stuff, because I'm that math teacher who wants to learn about calculus and, and theoretical mathematics but at the same time, if as an instructor, I, I have to temper myself back to know that most people aren't like that. They're going to be the half that quits or the one, the three or four that stay a year or so. 
And, uh, but anyway, uh, the thing about that learning to fight, uh, all my daughters have studied uh, a number of martial arts. Uh, they took martial arts when there was a YMCA class or a Taekwondo school down the street, or thank goodness we got to the point where I could enroll them in jujitsu or jikundo or Filipino fighting systems and all that. And so they've had almost, I was trying to replicate that same overall um, exposure uh, so that they could make a choice down the road, uh, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, most of them choose, chose jujitsu uh, with a little boxing and that on the side. But uh, again, that's one more thing I might be able to pat myself on the back and say that was a good influence for him also. And I heard my son say something one time. He, he was about 16 and he said, dad, is it okay if we go to the mall? And I said, well, son, we're going to, we've got to uh, put up the rest of the boards on that fence this afternoon. I was kind of hoping that you'd help me. And he goes, well, all my friends are going. And I go, well, kind of wanted to hear it. and this is what he said to me. and this was candid this wasn't this was spontaneous he goes but who'd protect him and i was like damn son i didn't say that to him but i said damn son you go to the mall if that's how you see yourself by god you earn that you go to the mall and when we talked about the at the very beginning of the conversation you said that uh the SRO ran towards danger. I believe that human beings are divided up into two, two tribes. <laughs> the tribe that runs to danger and the tribe that needs to be protected. Now, I don't believe that there is a judgment call against either side. I think it's just the way it is. It's why there are, it's why in the middle of a crisis, the 75 year old grandmother will step to the, to the forefront because she's a protector. She's a warrior. She is a sheepdog. And the, the, the football linebacker is over there in the corner by himself. It has nothing to do with physicalness. It has nothing to do with courage or bravery or cowardice. It has to do with the makeup of our nature. And I think that we divide, we can divide a million different ways from intellectuals to philosophers to, you know, bricklayers to farmers. But overall, I think we divide up into warriors and the ones that need to be protected by the warriors. And I think that's been true throughout history. Again, if you look back, um, the warriors were always held in a, in a position of high esteem, but they were also always held to a code, a code of honor, a code of chivalry, a code of conduct, because if they weren't, then they were the bad guys. And one of the things that I stress in the book about the warriors and the ones that need to be protected, if you, if you divide good guys and evil people, there are evil warriors. They're the same. That Again, it's like habits, doesn't care if it's good or bad. That principle of being a warrior or someone who needs to be protected can go 
and flip completely around and apply to the bad guys also. So again, sometimes, especially in combat, there's, there might be some real evil ISIS guys. I mean, full, cold-blooded evil by everyone's standard, but they might also be a warrior. So when we prepare to go into life's journey, we may end up meeting a bad guy who's not only a bad guy, he might also be a warrior. And that would be a real tough opponent on, in every regard. So again, when I talk about being prepared, teach your kids to fight, get that CCW license, get the training, look at that. Sounds like I'm just giving it a plug. Look at the book and see what the commonalities are from all these different attacks, all the different ways that people react to stress, all the ways that people react to uh, spontaneous uh, threat. Uh, if you can recognize those things and then say, you know what? It's not only happening to me, it's also happening to the bad guy. He's stressed, he's reacting to spontaneity. Because again, when we talk about, uh, and I think you and I actually might've talked about this on our first podcast, uh, you take two boxers, equally skilled. They all have the same skills. Right cross, upper cuts, left hooks, right hooks, everything, the footwork, it's all the same. There's, a, there's a, almost a finite amount of boxing skills that are available. And they're taught by every boxing coach that exists. So this guy's as good as this guy, as far as his, his uh, encyclopedia of skills that he carries around with him. Now, yes, there's disparities in experience and, and mentality and ferociousness and all that good stuff. But all things being equal, these two guys, because in weight classes in boxing, you can go up one or two pounds and now you're in a different weight class. So the guys are pretty much... They're pretty much equal, even Steven, as far as, you know, against each other. Yet, you will see if someone opens up in a, a flurry of punches, you'll see that the other guy cover. And he may duck and protect himself because he is being overwhelmed by force of violence. And he's not able to react quickly enough to counter the barrage or the flurry that's being thrown at him. Now, where am I going with this? They're equal in skill. He's been punched a thousand times before, but as a human being, if he has to react to my actions, he will never catch up to me ever. As long as I can keep him reacting to my actions, I've got the upper hand in a big way, okay? So when you talk about those universal principles, that, that applies me, good guy, doing it, using those principles against a bad guy, but being also aware that the bad guy can turn those things against me. So what I have to look at and go, okay, if I'm reacting to him, he can do anything he wants to me. He can shoot me, he can club me, he can kick me, he can break a brick over my head. doesn't matter. If I'm reacting to him, I'm at his mercy. So I need to be able to understand 
that I need to always keep the bad guy reacting to me. Now, think about when you say that about that teacher that ran up um, and wrestled that kid to the ground. What happens in a school shooting or a mall shooting or any kind of even a terrorist attack? The bad guys can do whatever they want until they are facing a countermeasure by some external force, whether that's somebody shooting back at them, whether that's by being bum rushed by a bunch of people, whether that's by people throwing books at them, whatever it happens to be. Now, is, is that me throwing a dictionary at a guy with an AK? Is that going to stop him? No, but here's the, maybe depends on how hard and how accurate I am, but it does this. It causes him to have to react to an external action, which might mean that he didn't shoot that person or that person, because at that split second in time, he was reacting to something that I was doing. Because when you look at it, what are the, what are the, what are the ways that an active shooter is stops shooting? What are the ways that he stops shooting? Well, he either runs out of bullets, his weapon malfunctions, or someone with a gun shows up. And he starts taking rounds himself. Or he takes his own life. And suicide is the, the other thing, too. But usually he commits suicide the minute the, bad, the good guys show up, you know, usually. So again, like you said, there's a dynamic at, at play at all times uh, that's, that's slightly different in every regard. But there are universal threads that run through this. So as a police officer that might be on duty in a school, I've got to act quickly. I can't cower down. And, and listen to gunshots, you know what? I took an oath to protect and serve. You know what? For me, you know what that oath means? That means no matter what, if it takes me giving it all I've got and knowing that I might not come out of this alive, so be it. That's, you know, I've, if your life is fulfilled, that's all these little things that add up together, together, together. I'm okay with that because if I can save one person, let alone 20 or 30, hell, I'm all in. doesn't matter to me. I took that oath. If I didn't take that oath, that's why I mentioned that about the police uh, academies. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be a police officer or not. I would, my, I've got my degree in graphics design. Uh, I can start out at 40000 a year, but man, LAPD starts me at 55000 uh, with unlimited overtime. I think I'll be a cop. Well, how is that person going to react when there's somebody who's, who is exerting extreme violence against others or that person? The old Irish cop wandering down the street with a billy club thumping bad guys in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. That's an old breed, man. And it's it's seems like, and I'm sure it's might be true even in, in fire departments and that. There used to be a a calling, you know, whether you were a teacher or a priest or a, a fireman or a, a soldier or a police officer, it was a calling. You knew that's what you were going to do when you were 12 years old. No question asked. So I think we also have to take into, into account this thing. If you're in an active shooter 
event, you're on your own. You are on your own, okay? Even when some of the good guys arrive, because they may be staging, they may be trying to figure out what's going on. Think about it. Most of the shootings, they take place in a very small amount of time. It's very rare when someone gets an hour to uh, hang tough, okay? Usually it's five, 10 minutes, everything's done. So you have to be ready to be on your own, whether you're in a theater, in a church, in a mall, uh, in a school. And again, one of the things I, I stressed in the book and one of the chapters was, you know, we take our teachers and we say, here's my child. My most precious thing that exists on the planet Earth is my children. I'm going to give them to you for the next eight hours. I expect them to be cared for. I expect them to, of course, be taught. I expect them to be safe. Well, think about that. How do we keep them safe? They're under your or my tutelage. There's an implied uh, consent there almost where me as a parent go, that teacher is going to protect my children. Or they better. And I think a lot of times we have those teachers that are the warriors and we have the teachers that are not the warriors. The warriors will do everything they can to protect that flock. But it, at times, the, the, other, the other half, the other teachers, they're looking for guidance. They're looking for help. They're looking for somebody who can give them a direction of, or an idea of what to do in a high-stress environment. That's why if I would love every single teacher on earth to, to read this book for, for a couple of reasons. Because knowing that there's certain things that are going to happen almost every single time, you can prepare yourself to like, for example, when I wrote about, um, you can't shoot what you can't see. Okay, just drop curtains in front of those, you know, you know how schools are, you can walk right down these causeways and there's classrooms, you can look right into the classrooms and all that. Because that shooter is in a high stress environment, even though they're one of those kids that played 500 video games, it's still a high stress environment. They're still subject to all the same things. They're going to go, they're like water. They go exactly where it's the easiest route. So if there's people over there, that's where I'm shooting. If I can't see what's here, even if, even if there's 50 kids in there behind a curtain, which provides no uh, cover at all, just concealment, they're going to go with the easiest route. So again, knowing that there's certain things, which I try to stress in this book about these universal principles and commonalities, uh, you can prepare without having to be someone who carries a pistol in classroom or whatever, but you can do certain things that are gonna, and again, James, I have to stress always, there's no invisible force field that you or I can ever construct, but all we've got is a balance being, and we just wanna tip that balance a little more a little more in our favor, a little more in our favor. That's the best we can do. Because again, will a guy go into a room and he can't see what's going on? He may look in there, who knows? But most of the time, it's going so fast for everybody that they just go where the easiest flow of water is. And so being aware of that, you can, you can start to prepare uh, for that eventuality. And, and I'll stop, I'm, I'm going way too long, I can see. No, 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 it's great. I just wanted to, to kind of circle to a couple of principles from the book. But before we do, 
I had, I think it was about two weeks before this actual shoot in Locala, we had um, a code red, so not a, not a drill, an actual, you know, threat in my son's elementary school. And I happened to be dropping him off from a doctor's appointment. So I literally walked in. They were like, Mr. Gearing, the doors closed behind me. Like, you got to come in this. It was basically kind of like a office closet between the reception and um, the next room. And I got to be inside a school shooting from a total teacher's perspective. And I'm in there. Oh. There was another, um, I think it was another parent that was bringing her. So, so there was about five, four or five adults in this room and a couple of kids. And, uh, my son said to me, I'm so glad you're here with me, daddy. And I was, and that just, you know, struck a chord in my heart because all the other children didn't have their mom or their dad with them, you know, but I got to see the lack of communication because obviously the principal was probably speaking to someone, but none of these teachers have any idea what's going on. I got to see the vulnerability of these people. Um, and it was literally, you know, talking, reading the book, it was that improvisation. That's exactly what I was doing. There was a paper guillotine in that room and I was, you know, getting ready to snap the handle off and basically make a machete and, you know, do whatever I could do because that's, that's it. I mean, that's the only option, get option we had. Yeah. Yep. But after that, um, when the shooting happened in this high school, the, you know, my sons were in another code red situation because there was a misunderstanding. They thought it was happening there. And so I wasn't there with my son. And then there again, he was on his own now with his school friends cowering. Um, my, my stepson was in, in a library. Um, my son was in a classroom and they were hiding under desk waiting for someone to walk in and murder them all. Um, but that really changed my mind of owning a weapon. I did um, Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response before. I'd had guns growing up on the farm. I just didn't have my own pistol. And it really reframed it. People, you know, my English friends are like, how could you have a gun? Like when you've stood in a fucking American high school, or <laughs> sorry, elementary school, yeah, and there could be someone walking through with a carbine or whatever, looking to murder your child, as you said, you want everything in that toolbox. I'm not walking around like John Wayne with spurs and fucking two pistols on my hip. But I want to have access to that. If that I have, I have tourniquets, I have masks, I have lockout kits, I have everything in my car. But I also have a pistol and I have a vest because I do my workouts in a vest. I'm like, well, why don't I just get an actual ballistic plates for this? And therefore, that's another factor. So I think with this whole weapon conversation, in an ideal world, we will fix all of these underlying issues and we'll become. Iceland, Norway, some of these places where our children aren't murdering each other on the streets. They're not walking into schools and murdering, you know. I mean, that happened mm -hmm. even in Norway on one isolated incident. Yeah. But overall, we've, we've addressed it. But you have to have the tools and you have to have the plan. And I think that was it. I've always been prepared physically as far as without a weapon. But that was something that I had to add to my arsenal about, I think it was about four years ago now, four or five years ago. That was another aha moment. Okay, I prepared X, Y, and Z, but here's another level. And I can't live in a fairy tale in America where every single person has a gun. The good guys and most, you know, all of the bad guys do. Bad guys do. Until yeah. we've remedied it, sadly, this is a necessity. So it was a real eye opener to me. So talk to me about the principle. I love the evade barricade. I'm um, sorry, detect, evade, barricade, and engage. So just give people an overview of what they can find in this book to maybe kind of open their eyes a little bit to to the lack of preparation some of us had and i'm talking about myself included i thought i was doing you know enough and then i was like shit no there's there's a lot more work for me to do to get to where i need to be well the thing about um being prepared 
which starts with knowledge. I mean, you, you have to learn about these things. You have to learn about what could happen. Then you have to learn about what the enemy is. Cause I always, they're the enemy. I don't, they're, if he's got a gun and he's pointing at, at innocent people are the enemy. So uh, learn what the enemy's general things are that they're going to try to do. Uh, that preparation starts. I always tell people it's like buying life insurance. Now you buy regular life insurance. You don't ever get to, you don't cash in. Your wife might, kids might, but you don't get to reap the rewards of that life insurance. But the preparation for a violent event, interpersonal human aggression, violent aggression, uh, if you have that life insurance, that you're prepared for that, then you can cash in on your own life insurance because you might be able to protect somebody. You might be able to save your life, save the lives of kids, whatever, save the lives of innocent people in a mall. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's life insurance that you can cash in on. Now, if you're lucky, you never have to cash that check. But I want that option. And the thing about uh, the protocols uh, of action in the book that we, you've mentioned it a couple of times, detective aid, barricade, and engage, those are the steps that you would go through in any attack event, whether it's, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's a fire, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a bad guy with a gun. First thing is detection, the situational awareness, the ability to pick out bad guys, to look at, I, I, I talk, oh, that's in, the, that's in, the, it's in my next book. It's called The Threat Matrix, which outlines, won't go there right now. The ability to detect, which means being self-aware, know what to look for in people. For example, the only, the only people that ever return your gaze will lock you and look back in, your, in a stare are cops and bad guys. Only those two people. Everybody else averts their gaze and all that. So I know, for example, I walk into a room and, or an event or whatever, and there's a bunch of people in there. I scan constantly. I scan constantly. And I always look people, I always catch them in the eyes for a brief millisecond, not a stare down or anything else. But if I see somebody lock on, okay, that's either a cop or a bad guy. So I just keep my eye on that type of person or that individual while this is going on. I always am conscious of what, you know, where's that guy going? What's he doing? Blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's the same with uh, suspicious behavior. A guy comes into a uh, ice cream shop and I'm sitting there with my wife and kids. Uh, for lack of a better definition, it looks kind of homeless, kind of vagrant looking, uh, something about them that just isn't right. Guess what? I'm not going to look at the, the, the nice young couple sitting across the, the tables, across the, the room from me. I'm going to be looking at that guy. I am going to keep him on my radar all the time. Now, that's not to say that a good-looking, well-dressed person can't be a bad guy. But when you start to look at that balance, what are the odds it's, it's way more odds that a suspicious looking person who's doing something. And again, you got to look at how they're dressed. You look at their shoes, you look at their, their, the way they're acting. You're looking at how they're, you know, 
what their overall demeanor is, and then you assess. And again, can, does everybody have that type of radar? A 30-year-old, a 30-year veteran sergeant on the police force, he's got highly tuned radar for that kind of activity because he's seen it a million times. But that's not to say that you or I can't start to develop that and through practice, and I, and I do it all the time. Again, my wife doesn't even know I do this, but I evaluate every single person in the room. And we're always taught, again, don't judge people. You know what? Sorry, I judge everybody. When it comes to, in terms of personal security and safety, you're being judged. What could that guy do if he decides to come over and grab me? And he's six foot four, 262 pounds. That's gonna be a tussle. What's that guy over there with the, with the cane? Is he going to use that cane as a weapon? I, I judge everybody in those regards just because I play that mental game so that hopefully I don't get caught going, oh, I never saw that coming as I'm laying on the ground bleeding out, okay? So detection, okay? Now, when it comes to schools, we could go on for several hours about what a school can do to not only detect a bad guy but prevent a bad guy from coming onto the campus. Um, the extreme, of course, is the Israeli system. You don't get in, you don't get to go into school. Uh, there are armed guards and the schools are fenced off. So you can't go around back, okay? Uh, they live in a little bit different environment than maybe we do here, but we do, if you look at uh, schools in New York City, for example, a lot of them are multi-story schools. There's an entrance and maybe an exit, but it isn't like a lot of the sprawling schools that we have, you know, all over the United States. So it doesn't have to be super restrictive, but there has to be some control over who gets on that campus and not a, not a set of rules. When has a bad guy ever followed any rules? And when has a bad guy ever read any rules? Okay. He just is going, I'm going to the mall or I'm going to the so-and-so or I'm going to the school and he goes right in and does whatever he has wants to do. Um, so when I say detection, that means the teacher, that means the principal, that means the police officer that's on, that might be on duty at that school. Cause a lot of schools now have in residence uh, law enforcement. So we, we have plenty of that out here in LA and LA school systems, by the way. Which, which I'll get to in a minute about uh, innocent bystanders being shot. Don't let me forget to touch on that point because it's very important. Um, the, you want to prevent the best, best self-defense that exists on the planet Earth is preventative self-defense. Who was the best fighter that ever walked the face of the Earth? The guy who never had to, yeah, the guy who never had to get in a fight whatever it was that kept him out of the fight. And he may be a ass whooping son of a gun, but if he never had to use it, he is the ultimate fighter. The art of fighting without fighting back to Bruce Lee. But they're, they're able to do that because they can detect a situation and get out of harm's way or diffuse the situation before it escalates to the, to the next steps of what an attack, because an attack follows a process too. Uh, if we have time, maybe we can talk about that, but there is a five-step process for every single attack, whether it's terrorist, military, uh, active shooters, doesn't matter. They, they follow a process. So detect, 
prevent it from happening, set up safeguards, uh, be aware, have the teachers go through classes that teach them. These are the things to look out for. These are the things to do if something bad happens. Oh, we, we prepare for fire drills and we prepare for earthquake drills and all that. Damn, prepare for an active shooter event. Come on. I, I haven't had a lot of earthquakes out here that have crushed schools. That's not to say it might not happen, but they, they practice earthquake drills out here. I don't know. I think there's been a lot more school shootings in California than there has been um, destructive earthquakes, you know? So spend your time and money where it's, where you are tipping. You look at the most likely things to happen and you go, okay, then those are the things we got to work on. Now, here's the deal about uh, school shootings. Are they likely? Are they happening all the time? Like you were saying in the beginning, 99% of what happens is good. It's the 1% that we see. 350 million people, school shooting every couple of weeks or something, statistically might be very small, but here's the, here's the problem with that. The consequences are not small. The consequences are the worst that they could possibly be. If I lost my brother, to a school shooter or a, uh, uh, a mall shooter, let's say. My brother, he's a grown-up. He had a life. Four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, God damn it, man. You got to do whatever is necessary to keep those people safe, those individuals. Now, evade. Someone has entered the environment. Well, you have to have, I spoke about in there in the book also, bias for normalcy. We always try and make things fit into our construct, whether it's uh, the sum total of our, our experiential uh, uh, environment that we've grown up in, things that we've learned, things that we've seen, things that we've done. Um, we try and fit everything into that construct, at least in the beginning. And I always use the example of there was a shooting in the mall. They interview people. The soccer moms are like, well, I thought it was balloons popping. I guarantee you the Marine just back from Afghanistan. He didn't hear balloons. He heard guns. Now they might've been balloons, but he heard guns. So he's going to get his family to cover or get them out of harm's way or to safety. So again, he has a bias for normalcy that comes from a combat environment. The soccer mom has a bias for normalcy that comes from a safe environment. We have to be able to negate that bias for normalcy by being aware of it and go, wait a minute, maybe that's not balloons. I better take action. Because the other thing that happens immediately after you figure out what's going on, detection, detect, is now action. And then that means the first thing that you would need to do is evade. Now, evade can mean escape. It can, it can mean um, get to a safer environment within the overall environment. In other words, if shooting's taking place uh, at the main entrance to a mall, and I can't get out of the mall, the farthest distance I can get from there 
would be my first choice. If I can get out and completely get out of harm's way, that's, that's the safest thing for me to do. So evasion means by whatever means, put distance between you and the dangerous event, the shooter. Um, barricade. If you can't get away, you've got to put something between you and the shooter. Now, let's define the difference between cover and concealment. Concealment, the easiest way I can put it is this. Concealment is like hiding behind a bush. Cover is hiding behind a brick wall. One hides you. One hides you and protects you. So the first choice you're going to try to make is in the terms of barricade, which means putting something between you and the, and the danger, you and the shooter, is doors. Get into another room. Get down behind something that's solid. Get to a bathroom. Somehow prop something against that door or hold it. Most bathrooms have metal doors, and they're made with uh, tile and cement and things like that. Um, Shooting's taking place over here. I get to the bathrooms. I think it's very, very rare that active shooters have gone into bathrooms and shot people in stalls. It's a very, it's a better safe environment than being out in the open. But that could mean getting behind, tipping your desk over, not getting under the desk, but getting behind the desk. Because again, someone comes through and he doesn't see anybody or you're not an obvious target. The way that their minds are acting is he goes again, Think of it as water. It's going to take the easiest path. Boom. He's going to hit the, the person that's right in front of him that he can attack if you, if you, or pick, let's say. So the last thing is you are trapped. You can't get away. There's innocent people there. Engage. That's the last thing that has to happen. It's the last choice but it is a choice that you would have to face. So the minute that I can engage that guy, whether he's shooting at people in, the, in a room over here and I come up from the side and start throwing books at him or attack him with that paper cutter that I've broken off as a, as a machete or whatever, I'm going to give those people a better chance to survive because the minute he's engaged, now he's not, He's not 100% offensive mindset because that's what's going on. When he's in here picking and choosing to do whatever he wants, it's 100% offensive mindset. If I can break that down to 70% or 60% or 50% or if I really have the ability to, to attack him and make him fight for his life against me and break it down to 20%, that means the killing stops. Now, he may kill me and re-engage but that brief amount of time that I may have stopped him from being able to do whatever he wants to do has, has saved people from being shot where he could just pick and choose whatever target he wants. Now, this is what I said I wanted to come back to. I am a big proponent of arming teachers. Now, let me qualify that. I would say this. It has to be a volunteer basis. I'm not going to force Mrs. Jones, who's scared to death of guns, to carry a, a gun. Desert Eagle. 
Yeah. <laughs> but if there are a number of teachers, and it might be Mrs. Jones, and it might be Mr. Jones, it might be Mr. Collier or whoever that say, you know what, I want to, I want to be one of those people. Uh, then I would say, okay, we'll take those people. Let's train them. Let's get them qualified for a concealed carry permit. Okay. Now, here's the argument. And I've given this lecture about school security to a number of different schools and administrators and PTOs and PTAs over the years. And, and I always get the same thing. That's crazy. You can't have guns on campus. Well, guess what? There is a gun on campus and it's in the hands of a bad guy because that's the only time these other guns are ever going to be a factor. Okay. So yes, there is a gun on campus. The bad guy's got the gun. We have that implied consent thing where we expect our teachers to protect our children with their lives. Let's give them the opportunity and, and the tools to actually fight back with some effectiveness. Now, Having said all that, the next argument that comes up is, well, innocent bystanders can be shot. You, you shooting at a, at a bad guy in that kind of environment, uh, you might hit children. 100%. Can't deny that. But here's the deal. You take those teachers and you make them go to a shooting. You make them go and study the information that I put in that book, okay? Then you physically teach them in scenario-based training, a weekend, and believe me, you can do it with airsoft. There's airsoft training is 100% legit. You can put them into those environments. You can put them on the range so that they have some modicum of uh, accuracy developed and being able to point the gun in the direction they want to fire at a target. But here's the deal. You do two courses like that a year, that's more than the average police officer does. Way more. I have sat at the ranges and watched police officers shoot, timed shooting and stuff. And I'll tell you what, this may, this may make a lot of people mad at me because I'm a big supporter of the police. Do not get me wrong. But I've seen 14-year-old kids, including people in my family, shoot better than some of those police officers. So when the bad guy has a gun and the good guys arrive, the trained operators and personnel, they're not going to hit that target every single time they shoot. There are going to be stray bullets fired even by the professionals that might hit someone unintentionally. But the thing is, the minute that the first shot comes from the good guy's side, it takes away that offensive capability because now where does that, where does that bad guy point his gun? He doesn't point it at Johnny. It's not a movie. Shoot. You fire that gun. I'm going to shoot Johnny. No, he turns and returns fire towards the, where the shots are coming from. That's a fact. Okay. So if I'm shooting, I'm a police officer and I'm shooting at him, I know for a fact I'm not going to hit him every single time because I'm undergoing all that stress and all of those things that we, that we talked about happen to the good guys and the bad guys. But as long as I'm shooting at him and hopefully hitting him, I'm taking away his ability to shoot people at random and at, under his uh, uh, choice, okay, whenever he wants to. So, yeah, there will be 
cases where innocent people might be killed. That's a fact. Can't take that away. But it's better, again, remember I said I got to be clinical about this. It's better to lose one by accident than 20 by an AK-47. That's a fact too, okay? Now, the last thing in that, in that argument is there are programs that are taking place in the United States right now that have been in place for four or five years. There has never been a negligent discharge by a teacher. Not one. No teacher has gone postal and shot students, not one. So not only is the track record there that these things actually work and they don't, because people are always like, again, like the argument comes back. Well, what if he's a goofball and he's a gun nut and he just decides one day, well, he could do that with a, <laughs> he do that with a, with a hammer. He could do it with a, uh, you know, a knife. He could do it with a, a chair, you know, uh, doesn't usually happen. A lot of teachers don't attack students. It's usually the other way around, in fact, in a lot of cases. But there's never been an accidental uh, death due to negligent discharge. Nobody's ever pulled the gun out and said, hey, settle down. I told you you had to do that assignment. No, never has happened. So again, that's why I'm a, a big supporter and uh, very passionate about arm the teachers and get a CCW, period, period. And I am diametrically opposed to gun-free zones because who follows the rules? Only the good guys. So that's stupid. That's on face value. That's one of those like, well, that sounds good and it feels good, but doesn't work worth a hill of beans. So I guess in kind of summing all this up, um, Oh, and by the way, I came from a school where we got, we got the entire week off of hunting season because all the teachers hunted. And even the, a lot of the female teachers, the women teachers also deer hunted because I'm, I'm from a real, real rural area, way, way, way far north in, in the United States. And the kids hunted, the teachers hunted, et cetera. I guarantee you one thing, every single day of the year, from me being in kindergarten till I graduated in high school, there were guns on that campus. Whether they were in the trunk or in the back of uh, one of the pickup trucks that owned, was owned by the teacher, there were guns available on that campus. Now, if you were to say, hey, I can't buy that. I can't allow, I just can't wrap my head around having teachers have guns. Well, then at least have a locker or something available in an administrative area or a secured area where they had access to a firearm of some type or multiple firearms. There's nothing wrong with that. Just have the people that have them have the code for the whatever, or have that administrator know, damn, there's shooting coming on. It's, it's from the east end of campus. Bob, Ted, Alice, John, get in here right now. Boom, grab those guns, head in that direction because now you've also taken an oath to protect and serve. So I don't expect you to just carry a gun and never have the wherewithal to use it. Now you gotta put yourself in that ring where it's you and that other person. I, I hope 
James, that I've kind of tied this all together. Uh, and it made some semblance of sense to you. <laughs> no, it has. It's been it's been great. And we've covered, I think, some very important topics from the kind of mental health side and the contributing factors through to what we can do. And I just wanted to um, read the quote you had in the introduction because I think it's a great way of kind of putting a, a bow on this before we talk about where people can find it. You quoted Samuel Adams. I'm assuming it was the uh, founding father, not the beer maker. Um, <laughs> but he says... <clears throat> If ever time should come where vain and aspiring men shall possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. And I think that sums up what we started talking about at the beginning as far as taking our country back. But also, I think, well, you know, the patriot is, is the community sheepdog. You know, I know uh, Dave Grossman yeah. loves that term. Some people don't. But whatever you see yourself as a protector. And so... At this moment in 2022 in the United States of America, we have to develop a certain skill set. I would love to be in a utopia one day where we don't have to worry about our children being murdered. And that's the way it should be. We're in a dystopia right now. But until then, we have to be part of the solution. So I thought the book was amazing. Uh, Bad Guy with a Gun, Volumes 1 and 2. So where can people listening find this? And then where are other places online they can find you? Well, they can find the book. Uh, it's, there's a Kindle edition for e-reading. They can order it from Amazon uh, and get a hard copy. Uh, and they can order it from emersonknives.com. Uh, all the ones that you buy from emersonknives.com, I'll, I'll sign them for you uh, so that uh, you get a signed one for, <laughs> for what that's worth. Oh, uh, I got but, one. It's worth a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. But uh, the... That's where you can get the book. And uh, I'm also available uh, at emersonknives.com uh, and uh, inf- info at emersonknives.com also for emails. If someone has any kind of questions or anything, I'd be glad to talk about it. Uh, I am available to, uh, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of schools and school administrators and, and just parents that are very interested in, you know, what, what can they do in their school uh, uh, systems to, to do that. Now, here's a funny thing. My, um, my daughter lives in a very rural area, way more rural than even where I grew up. There are 37 kids in her school that their kids that my grandchildren go to, and it's K through sixth grade. So there's only about eight or 10 students in every grade. Uh, there's a handful of teachers and they reached out to my daughter because they found out who, who, who she was, that she was related to me. And they want us to do a, con- a concealed carry class for all the teachers in the school. Uh, I called up my buddy, Denny Chalker. Uh, don't know if that rings a bell with anybody, but Denny was, uh, was one of my best personal friends. Uh, he was a plank owner for SEAL Team 6. Uh, I done a number of shooting classes with him over the years. I called him up. I said, Hey, Denny, cause he lives, he lives about 60 miles North of where my daughter's from. And uh, it's all farmlands and ranches. So it's all uh, real world. And I said, Denny, would you want to help me do a class? Uh, we want to teach a bunch of teachers and maybe set up a program down the road uh, for uh, specifically for teachers and or parents that, you know, because they have volunteer parents that go in and help teach and all this and that. Uh, and he said, Ernie, are you kidding? Huh. 
because that that would be the ultimate people to to teach how to defend themselves with a firearm. And I said, so you're in? He goes, yeah, I'm in. So we're setting up some things down the road, hopefully where he and I, uh, I'll be very honest with you about it. He's the real shooter. I'm the guy who I guess is the supporter. And um, I like to think I'm a good shooter too, but Danny's a, he's the real deal. Uh, real, real deal guy. And uh, I would be the one who is, who is more in tune with all of the teaching aspects, considering the uh, uh, protocols and all of the different things that happen, what I've outlined in the book, so to speak, uh, because I, I know what hat I wear. I know what uh, my skill set is and I know what, what my skill set isn't because I've also over the years realized that in order to, to fulfill my destiny, I have to have an, a brutally honest ability to self-evaluate. Never believe that I'm anything that I'm not, because I think I talk about that in the book too. You can, you can believe that you can do all of these things, but if you really can't do them, when the you-know-what hits the fan, you can't do them doesn't matter. So again, brutally self uh, and honest evaluation. So um, we're looking at doing that. Again, I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. So the books are available uh, and you can get them at Amazon, Kindle and emersonknives.com. And uh, I just hope somebody, if I could help someone get out of a jam, just even one person by reading that book and uh, then i have fulfilled my destiny so beautiful well i want to thank you again it's been another amazing conversation thank you for the book um it, oh, like james. i said it really was an invaluable resource um and we've been all over the place with this conversation but i I'm sh <laughs> I, I know that a lot of people pull a huge amount from it and then you know that lead them to the book and that's where the real kind of meat and potatoes is of what we discussed today Excellent. I really appreciate it, James. Thanks for having me on and uh, keep up the good work. Honest, you're fighting the good fight and there is no, there is no more noble cause than to fight for what's good and what's right and help those that need help. Mm -hmm.